The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Envire Show here on SFM. Thanks very much for joining us. Hope you're going to stay with us right through until 10 o'clock. With the team, that's me, Nancy Richards, together with Kim Winter and Derek Fordyce. What we have on the show tonight, I have to say, with load shedding stage three being of a huge concern right across the country, we are nonetheless going to give it a bit of a break because what we have tonight is a very water-driven focus. We're going to start off with a newly declared Ramsar wetland. That's the False Bay Nature Reserve. We're going to find out a little bit about why it's uh, of international importance. We're talking to regional manager Dalton Gibbs. After that, to staying with water, award-winning environmental journalist with the Mail and Guardian, Sipo Kings, whose recent report included eight ways to fix our water woes. Well, we're going to find out from him exactly what those are. And we'll also be chatting to the Institute for Security Studies' uh, Steve Hedden, who's been very involved with the water crisis, so we'll find out a little bit from him uh, in what way he's been involved and what our concerns, our major concerns, should be around the water crisis. And on account of the very high water table in this show tonight, in our forage feature, what we thought we'd find out is exactly what goes into your bottle of water. So we'll be finding out a little bit more about that from uh, Jody Brimer of the Cape Karoo Mineral Water Organisation. See what exactly there is in your bottle of water. Then we'll be moving to creatures, significantly a creature that will soon be homeless if indeed our wetlands continue to disappear. It's the white-winged fluff-tail to whom a festival has been dedicated on account of its shrinking numbers. In fact, there are only 250 left in the whole world, 50 of them right here in South Africa. So we'll check in with CEO of BirdLife South Africa, that's Mark Anderson, he can give us uh, uh, information about why the white-winged fluff-tail is so important. And to close, finally, while the bug feature that we hoped to start last week, focusing on different small creatures, our very tiny members of our biodiversity, we're going to start it today because we didn't manage last week to get hold of zoologist Dr. Sabel Daniels. Um, He rediscovered the pink velvet worm, so we'll find out from him exactly how he did it, and that will be starting today. As I say, lots and lots of uh, concern around uh, load shedding as it reaches stage three, but we are talking about water tonight, so... Just to uh, give you this little bit of information as a heads up if you're in the Johannesburg area, water and sanitation service provider Johannesburg Water warned residents uh, yesterday that a planned 25-hour water disruption will be taking place. The disruption will affect the areas listed um, below. You'll have to check your site for that on February the 7th from 2 o'clock through until February the 8th at 3 o'clock. That's due to Rand Water performing maintenance at the Eichenhof pump station. They will continue to supply water into the system, but at a reduced capacity. There might be poor pressure and no water supply, so at least you'll know exactly what's going in. But rest assured, tanks will be provided and filled at hospitals. So there you go, something else to worry about, the reduced water supply in the Johannesburg water area. Stay tuned, you're listening to The Enviro Show. The Enviro Show. We're starting off with World Wetland Day, which, as you know, was last week. And in terms of protected wetlands... South Africa has got quite a lot to be proud of, um, but at the same time, much to be worried about. But on the former, just last week, the 22nd Ramsar wetland of international importance was declared right here in South Africa, the False Bay Nature Reserve. So let's find out firstly, what is a Ramsar site? Well, the Convention on Wetlands, called the Ramsar Convention, it's an intergovernmental treaty that provides the framework for national action and international cooperation for the conservation and wise use of wetlands. 
and all that goes with them. So it's so called because it was adopted back in 1971 in the Iranian city of Ramsar. So there you go. Now you know exactly what a Ramsar site is. It is. But why are they of international importance? And why is this particular one of international importance? Well, we have on the line Dalton Gibbs, who is the regional manager there, and uh, he's going to explain to us why the False Bay Nature Reserve is so important. Hi there, Dalton. Good evening, Nancy. Hi. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, just explain to us then why this particular, I mean, given we all understand how important wetlands are, why is this particular wetland so very important? Uh, well, as you pointed out, the Ramsar Convention is an international convention, and the idea is to conserve a network of uh, international wetlands. And the primary driving force was migratory birds. And uh, as we know, a lot of bird species uh, breed up in the northern latitudes, up in Siberia and northern Europe. And they migrate uh, south in our summer and the, the European-Asian uh, winter. And uh, the false manager is the very, very southern end of that sort of migratory route. Our furthest record for a bird here is a little stint. Now, that's a little 40-gram 40, 40 wader bird, uh, which rung in Cape Town, was recovered two months later in Moschino, southern Siberia. That's a 12,000-kilometer uh, 12, trip. And as you can understand, the birds obviously need to stop on their way to and from their breeding grounds. And so Ramsar sites are, are sites of international significance, sort of uh, one-stop shops, so to speak, on that, on that migratory route, which the birds can then feed and rest for, before moving north to breed. So a lot of these migratory birds, it's, it's going to take an international collaborative effort for them to survive into the future. And as I said, we're the very, very southern end of that network. Um, but on top of that, the Fosbury Nature Reserve is situated on the Cape Flats, which has some of the highest concentrations of endangered plants in the world. Um, so we've also got unique flora, uh, plants which are just located on these sort of this last main fragment of the Cape Flats, as well as um, a number of endangered amphibian species. So quite an interesting host of flora. We also have the only population of hippo that still remain in, in the sort of greater Cape Town area. And they were introduced in the 1980s. So quite a unique area and, and a very urbanised Ramsar site compared to the other Ramsar sites in South Africa. Uh, migratory birds, um, endangered plants, amphibians, hippo. What about people? Because this is one huge area. It's something like 2,300 2, hectares. Uh, and as you say, quite rightly, it's, you know, it's a very urban area. To what extent will, uh, you know, if, if it's damaged in any way, how will that affect the people living around it? Um, well, it's a very interesting site. As I said, it's, it's surrounded by people. It's, it's highly urbanized in its uh, context. Um, but there's three major water bodies. There's a uh, Ronda Flay, which was an originally established in 1952 as a, as a bird sanctuary, and is primarily conservation-focused. Next door is a wetland called Siku Flay, which is the largest water body in Cape Town. Um, and that's got a lot of people living around the edge. It's, it's got a lot of recreation, a lot of sports codes that use it, um, something like 90% of, of all South African sailors that have represented South Africa have trained on that water body mm -hmm. and have come off that water body. So a huge recreational area. And then further to the south are effluent treatment plants that, that uh, form part of the Cape Flats Wastewater Treatment Works. So very different water bodies being used for very different purposes. Yeah, yeah. perhaps my question um, should have been the other way around. It's perhaps it's less about, you know, how will uh, anything anything sort of damaging the wetland, how will that affect people? And it, perhaps the the, quest, the bigger question is how are people adversely affecting the wetland? That's probably oh, yeah. the bigger issue, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, these wetlands are all connected to the urban stormwater system in Cape Town, so obviously there's a lot of runoff. Um, 
there are things like uh, accidental sewage spills and things like that that do enter these wetlands. Um, but great strides have been made in, in recent years to cleaning up these water bodies like Sikufle, uh, which have been highly atrophicated in the past. So yes, there are urban impacts, and uh, one can't get away with it that we're in an urban context. But nevertheless, there are um, amphibians, which are, which are great indicators for water quality, still hanging on in these systems and, and surviving. So, yeah, there's hope. It's, it's not an untouched system, mm. but it does support the sort of life, and it's the last refugia for some of these species. So, yeah. yeah. Well, we're going to be talking about um, a species that depends for its habitat. It's going to be homeless if anything happens to the wetlands, which is the white-winged fluff-tail. We're going to talk about that later on. But just lastly, because it's of international importance, does that, you know, we've got 22 Ramsar sites in, of international importance here in South Africa. Does that mean that we get any international support or is it incumbent on us who live in that particular area to be looking after it? I mean, is it, you know, are we, South Africa, only responsible for it? Well, we certainly are responsible. It's part of our heritage and it's certainly part of our culture. Um, and South Africa as a nation is responsible for it. But yes, we would get international support. And if there was funding to deal with some of these issues, it's, it's certainly a good investment for, for any funder wanting to put funding into the environment because it's the highest level of protection, really, that the country can give to these sort of wetlands. So mm. it does show a commitment and, uh, and an understanding and a commitment to conserve them. Um, so yes, it's certainly a, benef a benefiting factor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it shows the commitment, but it's, it's really up to us as uh, custodians of this unique biodiversity to look after it. Yeah, for us and our, and our descendants. If anybody would like to know more, the website I have is fbep.co.za. Is that right? FBEP, that's False Bay Ecology yes, Park. Yes, uh, and also the City of Cape Town's website. Which is? Um, the site is run by the City of Cape Town. It's www.capetown. Fabulous. Thank you, Dalton. What a proud moment. And a 22nd of our Ramsar internationally important wetlands. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Take care. Dalton Gibbs, who's regional manager there, well, if you'd like to know a little bit more about it, check either capetown.gov.za or the site itself, which is fbep.co. Well, what we are going to find out right now is uh, what's going on with the footy. We've got Atta Sibeta on the line to tell us all about the AFCON status at the moment. Hi there, Atta. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Stadio de, Pat, the Stadio de Malabar, I must say, out here in Equatorial Guinea in the match between Equatorial Guinea, the host, and Ghana. It's the second semi-final already in the 16th minute of the first half. The score still stands nil-nil. Now, looking ahead at the, the two teams coming into this game, well, it's the first time that they're both meeting at this level of the Africa Cup of Nations or in any other tournament they've never met before. So it's going to actually mark a very, very good battle for the two teams who are separated 700 miles off the Gulf of Guinea. So tonight's clash at the Stadium Malabo is the first time for these two teams and we'll be able to see how they're actually going to entertain themselves with so far nothing much to write home about for both teams. Changes for the teams? Well, Equatorial Guinea's coach Estadio Becker has made three changes from his side's quarter-final win over Tunisia. Raul Fabian was hugely, well, you'd say, ineffective in that game. Well, he's been replaced by a potential wild card, Iban Salvador up front. Randy has also set out of this game as Bellima takes his place, while Danny Envio has come on for Sipo. In the other group, that is uh, in Ghana's camp, there's only one change, that's an enforced one. That's despite a last-minute scramble to recover. Asamoah Gyan, the captain, after the hip injury, he was ruled out of this game 
and Jordan Ayu has come on to his place and Kwesi Apier will also lead the line for the Black Stars. So the current score still in the first half of the second semi-final between Equatorial Guinea and Ghana. It's Ghana nil, Equatorial Guinea nil. Sounds like a bit of a draw there at this stage of the game. Certainly we'll be hearing more from Atta later on in the show, a couple of times in fact. But right now here on the Enviro Show, it's water is our topic. And uh, in a special report on water in a recent issue of the Mail and Guardian, there was a piece called Eight Ways to Fix Our Water Woes. Uh, it was co-authored by Sipo King, an award-winning environmental journalist. And we'll, get, uh, we'll find out from him what some of those are in just a minute. But uh, So Sipo, hang on to the line there. We're going to be chatting to you just now. But someone who helped, I think, uh, quite considerably with the research was Steve Hedden, who's a researcher at the uh, International Security uh, Studies, Institute for Security Studies, sorry. Um, got him on the line because he put together a paper called Parched Prospects. Well, we've got him, I think, on the line. Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. Can you, uh, Hi, Nancy. Hi. Can you hear me? Yep, yep, got you loud and clear. Uh, yeah, um, thanks for having me on the show. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Parch Prospects doesn't sound too hopeful. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit what that paper was all about? Yeah, uh, our uh, main goal basically with the paper was to forecast water demand uh, over the next couple decades and to see if uh, the increases in supply in the National Water Resource Strategy are uh, enough to meet that growing demand. And unfortunately, we found that they're not enough, and we're going to see a gap between demand and supply for the next about 20 years. That's a kind of a gloomy equation. So the forecast demand over the next few decades, I mean, clearly, as our population grows, clearly there's going to be more and more required. So how did you do that? Uh, I mean, how did you ascertain what we're going to be needing in the next couple of decades? Well, uh, the the paper is part of a project they actually have with the uh, Part E Center for International Futures, uh, the Part E Center in Denver, and um, it's an integrated long-term forecasting model, and we basically forecasted water demand for all three sectors, municipal, industrial, and agricultural, um, using urbanization, economic growth, uh, increased electricity use, and increase in land under irrigation as uh, variables to drive our forecast of water demand. Okay. Just get me right here. We are talking about South Africa exclusively, are we? We are, yes. Yeah. This paper was exclusively about South Africa, although the model is a global model. Okay. I suppose the big question is, and we're going to hear eight ways that we can uh, do something about this from SIPO in just a minute, but um, just give us an idea of what we are able to do about it, if anything. <laughs> That's a good question, Nancy. Mm. Um, I mean, the main focus of our paper was to draw attention to the problem and to quantify the problem. And there's not a lot of data or research in just that area itself. Uh, what we find is it's a really cross-sectoral problem that requires integrated solutions, and there's no silver bullet here. Yeah. The other problem, I suppose, as we, you know, we're thinking, oh, well, the, the population is growing, we're using more and more water. The other problem, of course, is that we're not getting so much. I mean, climate is changing, you know, extreme, weather extremes are, are increasing, but, and yet we see a lot of floods. I mean, are you able to predict what the, what the weather pattern, the rainfall pattern will be? Uh, no, we can't predict that. I mean, you know, the weather is always uncertain. Um, what we've looked at is, you know, national physical water which is also not necessarily going to drive water scarcity on the ground. So you could have an abundance of physical 
water in the system, but with poor infrastructure or because of contamination or for any other reason, you don't have it at your tap when you need it. Okay, so it's not just the water itself, it's how we're going to access it. Right, there's, I mean, there's a, a host of problems, the contamination, physical water scarcity, stress through infrastructure. Um, I mean, it, all the water in the world won't help you if your pipes are broken. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess this is where we bring Sipo in, because, um, Sipo, are you there? Yes. Yes. Hi. Well, thanks very much. So together with Sarah Wilde, you you guys put together an eight-point plan, or at least eight ways in which we can do something about this impending yeah. water crisis, if indeed it isn't already a water crisis. Um, j just listening to what Steve said, give us an idea of what some of the solutions are then. I think uh, along the lines of what he was saying, our, our single biggest point is we need to realize that this is a problem. I mean, most of us can live in this illusion that you turn the tap and we have water, mm. especially people in cities, which is the majority of people. So we need to, all of us say, much like ESCOM is trying to get people to do now, say we have a water problem, so what can we do? And then how can we get our politicians to, I don't know, start doing more and start fixing the problems and stop stealing money that causes the problems and elevate it to a national, not so much a crisis, because then we'll all panic, but much like ESCOM, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really, really worry about this. Start talking about it at every single level. Yeah, I, I guess it's you know to be honest, everything's been a little bit eclipsed by the load shedding at the moment. But yeah. we, we need to raise up the the water issue. So admitting that we have a, a water problem is the first step, and then. And then we say we've got to fix. There's a lot of government things that need to be fixed. So if you're if you're a rural person, you rely on the Department of Cooperative Affairs to give you water. So that's your municipalities. And most municipalities don't have engineers. They don't have no. They don't have the people to know what they're doing. And a lot of them, I don't know, they just don't care. So they'll, unless you protest, they won't do anything. So we need to fix that department, so they can because we lose a third of our water through leaks, and that's in those areas. So if you want to really tackle problems for people, it's at the municipal level, and then at the national level, you've got to talk about the departments like Water Affairs, which are trying to give all of us water, and that department's got issues. It delivers, like the Duhuk Dam, delivers projects quite a few years behind schedule, which means people don't have water. Then you have companies which are destroying the water. So like in Mpumalanga, we have all these mines dumping things in, like you saw with Carolina, where you have entire towns that run out of water because it's polluted. So we've got to make sure people pay when they pollute the water. And then every single one of us has to do something. We've got to use less water. This is what ESCON has been trying to do with people, but electricity you can fix quickly, but water, you know, it, it breaks very slowly all over the place. So we all have to do a little bit to use less. Yeah. Those are all sort of quite punitive measures, but, I mean, it, you know, it's reached yeah. this crisis stage, so we do have to look at, the, look at yeah. those. But, I mean, on a more positive scale, uh, aspect, you say we could reduce demand. How can we do that? I mean, how can we actually do with less water? You know, as Steve was saying, you know, we, we tend to be a little bit wasteful. How can we reduce demand? Well, at that very simple level, a third of all our water is lost in leaks and it's used by people who don't pay for it, like non-revenue water. So if you start stopping the leaks, that's a huge amount of water you can fix without changing behavior. And then, you know, like using grey water, recycling, the things we can do in our own homes. We're, we're one of the few countries in the world where your tap water is actual drinking water, and mm. people use that on their garden, they use it on their car. I mean, we're, we're very spoiled. So we need to start thinking about that and realizing that we are a parched country.
and care about our water. Yeah. So water harvesting would be, you know, so so we're using grey water for things like car washing yes. and all that sort of thing, rather than, you know, good, pure, clean drinking water, which is the case at the moment. Yeah, and that, our big problem, is, I mean, it's exactly like Eskom. Our big problem at the moment is water is so cheap that you don't care. I mean, if you're middle class or higher and you have a tap, it, you don't really notice the cost of it. So you all use it for your car and you all use it for your garden. So that price has to go up before we change our behavior. Yeah, I guess it's don't care, but it's also going right back to your number one issue is is being aware because very often yeah. people who are washing a car, it's not that they don't care, they just don't think. It's, sure. you know, not it's not top of mind. The big one that is quite a sort of an interesting one here is a move away from coal. Now, just explain to us, if you can, in a simplified version, you know, how moving away from coal will help us save water. So uh, the older power stations, all the ones that are... Um, blowing gaskets and not working at the moment, use water to cool their turbines and all their processes, and it uses a huge amount of water. Madupi and Kusuli, the new power stations, use a little bit less, but it's still massive amounts of water, and you've got to supply them. And Eskom gets water before anyone else in the country. It's a national imperative. Mm. So if you have renewable energy sources, they use water, but they'll use far less water. You can save there. And they also, I mean, on the other side, the coal that goes into the power stations leads to acid mine drainage, leads to water pollution, all those other issues that don't end up on the accounting books. Sadly, that's only going to get worse because, as you point out, once Madupi and Kusile um, come online, that's going to add even more to our yeah, already strained yeah. water resources. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's like what the Parch Prospects are saying. A lot of the thinking isn't done sort of holistically, like, if you do build a power station, what's the impact on all other things? And water is always left out. Water is always forgotten. Yes, it's not so forgotten when you're when you're very very dry. Steve, just to bring you back in here, one of the um, things that we didn't mention is you know underground water, all those aquifers. Where apparently, we have sort of huge sources of water underground. It always seems to me, and this probably a little bit naive, that if we it, once we've used that up, we're not going to replenish those stocks. What's the situation with underground water? Well, unfortunately, the situation with underground water, underground aquifers, is just so uncertain. A lot of the information we have comes from uh, satellite imagery or um, some borehole knowledge. But uh, even if there were enough uh, water in the aquifers to satisfy all demand, it's not as though you could just put in a straw and satisfy an entire city. It's usually more of a agricultural use. Yeah. And, I mean, it really comes back to the integrated approach because uh, with the meeting demand with supply, a lot of the um, solutions that others propose will be we need to engineer our way out of it. We need to build bigger dams or just build bigger boreholes. But what we're really arguing for in our paper is more, uh, like Sipo is saying, you know, take a integrated approach. There's demand management you could do. There's uh, non-revenue water from leaks. And... There's, there's a reuse of wastewater is a big one, um, but it's really an integrated, I mean, the electricity, food, water, it's all connected. And I think we need to start thinking about it like that rather than just say, let's build bigger dams. Yeah. Well, maybe what we need is a bit of a wake-up call, so maybe you can give us that. I mean, when it, where is the tipping point? At what stage are we going to be, are our prospects going to be seriously parched? In your study, were you able to sort of give us a, an estimated date? Well, no, that's, I mean, the, the bit of the problem is that uh, we say demand exceeds supply. It sounds like there's not enough 
literally not enough water for people to drink or to use. And what it really means is that we're over-exploiting. So it becomes more of a probability and a risk factor. If you're over-exploiting water, it might not be a problem this year, might not be a problem for the next 10 years. But if you're continually over-exploiting your water resources every year, then suppose there's a drought that lasts one or two years, then that could be time when you actually have a national water scarcity crisis. Mm-hmm. See, parched prospects, a paper, is it, is it available for public viewing? Yeah, it's uh, available on our website at okay. issafrica.org. Okay. Let me repeat that if anybody would like to check it out. And I guess that the message is let's just all be a little bit careful, more careful about our water. Steve Hedden, thank you very much. That's issafrica.org, issafrica.org. Sipo, what about you? Are you very careful about water on a personal level? Uh, sure. <laughs> the curved ball. I think when you're middle class, you tend to you tend to get locked into things like yeah. cleaning your car and doing the garden and all those things. And you... Yeah, you don't think of the innovative ways that you should be saving. Yeah. I mean, I've, yeah, I've tried, but it, it is something that we all have to do. We've all got to... It is about shocking people. I think it's only to know there's actually a problem. Well, if anybody's... So if you, if you live yeah. outside the cities, I mean, it's, you don't have water. That's a fact of life yeah, every day, but for us... Well, we look to reading more about from your pen on SIPO uh, on water because I know it's something that uh, is of great, well, all environmental issues are of great concern to you. So thank you very much. Very best of luck. And uh, let's uh, keep saving our water. Thanks, guys. Take care. Sipo Kings, he's with the Mail and Guardian. Check their site, mg.co.za. It's time for us to cross again and find out what the score is uh, in Equatorial Guinea there with Atta. Hi, Atta. Hello, and well, the score still stands at nil-nil. This is in the 31st minute of the first half of the second semi-final between host Equatorial Guinea and Ghana at the Stadio de Malibu. I must say that uh, Equatorial Guinea, actually the home side, are the ones who are looking a much better composed side com- uh, compared to the Black Stars of Ghana. Earlier in the 14th minute, we did say Ghana's attacking has looked a little disjointedly though, with a few offsides leaving the coach uh, Grant frustrated on the touchline, while Equatorial Guinea have had the better of the opening chances. In the 18th minute as well, we saw the first yellow card of the, semi, of the semi-final. After, uh, this is after Waikato of Ghana holding down Kike on the run, and that sparked actually a very angry reaction from the bench that must have held the card out of the referee's pocket. The 20th minute as well, Baobo of Equatorial Guinea, who flighted a nice free kick towards the near post, but agonizingly it was just too far ahead of Hunsu, who was primed down in the attack in, inside the area. However, Balbao in the National Thunder side, he'll always be a threat in the Ghanaian defense with his set pieces. So Equatorial Guinea looking a much better side uh, compared to how they played uh, in their match against Tunisia in the quarterfinals. But this time they've taken a much better upper hand, uh, better uh, than the Ghanaian Black Stars. But it'll be still a long way to go. Still in the first half, 32 minutes gone, uh, with Equatorial Guinea nil and Ghana nil. Atta Sibeta, SFM Sport. Thanks very much, Atta. We'll hear a little bit more from him later on. Well, right here on the Enviro Show, it's time for us to go foraging. And on our forage feature tonight, in line with our water theme, we thought we'd take a look at what is uh, often seen as the guilty party, bottled water. 
Well, what happens to that bottle once you've drunk it? That's definitely another story for another day. But what we thought we'd look at is what actually goes in to the bottle. What is that water? What's been done to that water that makes it so special and very often quite expensive too? On the line, Jodie Brimer, Sales and Marketing with Natural Cape Carew Mineral Water. Hi, Jodie. Hi, Nancy. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thank you very much. Thanks. Natural Cape Carew Mineral Water. Is that a clue? Does, does the water <laughs> in all those bottles come all the way from the Carew? Um, no, unfortunately not. Um, I think the name just led from itself from a, from a Cape derivative and obviously Carew being near the Cape and obviously the, the founding partners of the, the company decided to call it Carew and then a couple of years later we changed it to Cape Carew Water to sort, not to mislead the, the public. Okay. And I suppose that there are similar stories with each and every one of the different, uh, I mean, it's a very competitive field, you know, there's frantic water and there's this water and that water. Does it, is it, uh, does it usually come from the area that it says it does or not necessarily? Not necessarily, I don't think so. I think a lot of the guys, just I think if you read the, the packaging and the labelling behind it, it'll, it'll give you, the, it'll actually, like legislation for this, we have to name the water source or where the water source is is situated. So I think from a consumer point of view, I think people, if they just read the labelling on the water, then obviously see where it's bottled or where the water is, the source of the water is. And in your case, the source of the water is where? Um, in in Pol, um, in one of the, um, the one of the mountains in Pol, um, just outside in the Winelands, I um, mean outside Cape Town. In the mountains, so you go straight to the source. I mean, it's spring water. Look, we, we uh, spring water, mineral water, um, very similar. They've got very different um, uh, ways in terms of which we um, bring the water up. Um, spring water derivatively comes is basically it comes straight out the ground so it's already made its way to the surface where mineral water which what we do is we go fetch it directly in the ground and bring it back up to the surface and then bottle it from there okay well, that's interesting so spring water is on the surface mineral water you have to go um scratching around for which sounds a lot more expensive um not that, obviously yes because you obviously have to find the source of the water so you'll have to go down and, and look for it and obviously you have to find the correct source which is to make it worth your while um but obviously like a lot of the spring water guys i mean it's that's pretty easy you've walked around you find a really nice clean spring and then you can just set up a bottling plant there where obviously we've gone a bit deeper into the ground um drilled through it and obviously found the water the water source down deep in the earth mm. the other thing of course is that it's all in the name isn't it mineral water implies that it's better for you than spring water which sounds lovely and fresh but mineral water sounds like you're going to be getting all sorts of goodies I, th- I think I, mean, I was chatting to one of my, uh, my f- the production manager on the farm who, where our, um, our mineral water is bottled. I think each each of them have its own um, tendencies to which is healthier, which is better. But I think obviously the trace minerals found um, in mineral water is obviously a lot more because we fetch it directly out the out from the ground, um, and you're getting a lot more of the trace elements in there. Where obviously through spring water you're still getting the trace elements, but obviously with it making its way to the surface, it, it's gone through sort of a natural filtration yeah. filtration system. So there are a lot less, but obviously both of them lead to general good, healthy, you know, lifestyle and living. So what are those trace elements? What are those minerals? Well, I think it's quite a few. I mean, we've got, I've got, we've got listed on our, on ours, I mean, it's calcium, magnesium, um, Oh, so there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. And does it differ? I'm sorry, I'm really putting you through your paces here, but does it differ from area to area? I mean, you know, you're getting it from a, a Pearl Mountain. If it comes from a Limpopo Mountain, will the minerals be different? You know, the geology is very different. 
I think it would lend to that. Sorry, I mean, it's not, not my area of expertise at the moment, but I think it would lend dif- uh, differently to each area. And obviously, each area will have, I think it's just obviously where, how your, um, your hole or your water source gets, gets refilled. So obviously, water, it's a, a cavity with inside the earth, and obviously, it's got to get refilled. So depending on how, and 10 to 1, it's refilled with rainwater, and, and obviously, through the filtration system and making its way from earth into the, into the cavity where the water lies, um, you know, it will obviously pick up trace elements through those areas. So depending on the area, I think, yes, it would, would lend itself to have a different composition in each area. Presumably it needs, I mean, it's all very well coming up from the earth or, you know, springing out from a spring, but presumably it needs to be filtered. What does it lose in the filtration process? Look, the, obviously the government's got certain standards for bottled water and spring water and mineral water. So obviously with those guidelines, we have to adhere to the certain filtration systems or s- filtration um, techniques which are allowed to use. And obviously because you're calling it a mineral water, the filtration system that you have to use, you would obviously just lend itself to getting rid of um, p- particles like sand and debris and that kind of thing, but obviously try and keep the general consistency of the water the same as it's obviously flowed um, you know, or as it came out the ground. So obviously the government has got very, very strict guidelines and we have to follow those guidelines. So the, we, do do, we do filter it, but obviously very strictly and we use very different kinds of, of um, filtration systems versus bottled water, for example. I don't want to put you in a spot because, I mean, you're just one of so many different companies, but to, what gets added, you know, and do you have to say what you've added? Do you have to add any sort of chemicals to keep it fresh or, or what? Um, uh, from, uh, from a mineral water and a spring water point of view, you obviously don't want to add anything because obviously it's, it's, gener- it's generalized itself from being a clean, drinkable water, and obviously you test for that on a regular basis. Um, from legislation's point of view, you have to declare any additives or things like that. So from a flavored, flavored water point of view, yes, obviously we do add stuff, obviously, to make it flavored, and obviously there are, in certain, other, in certain instances, we add preservatives to... <clears throat> to to keep the, the shelf life of the water, mm. but from a clean, from a, a sparkling water or a, a still water, which you would just buy normally to drink, and there's nothing really added from a mineral sp- a spring water perspective. But I can't say too much from a bottled water perspective. I'm not not too sure on that side because obviously bottled water is just normal bottled water, yeah. and I think you know, obviously whatever's been added from government perspective would obviously still be in the water as well. Yes. Mm. Just you, lastly, you mentioned shelf life there. What is the shelf life of bottled water? I mean, every time I go to a supermarket, there's rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of bottled water. And I think, ooh, how long have they been there? And does it does it make a difference if it's been there for some time? Look, I don't think it does make a difference, but obviously um, with each uh, facility, obviously you would have your different criteria um, in how you manage your bottling process. And obviously um, we go through very strict um, SABS standards, which we do twice a year, as well as we have a HACCP audit as well uh, once a year where obviously they audit you in terms of your control. So I think um, obviously if the water you're putting into the bottle is clean, your shelf life would obviously be longer. Um, But again, you know, I think it it will differ from area to area as well but I mean generally I would say anything from six months to 12 to 10 six months to 10 months your is your, your every child's life of a, uh, any bottled water yeah so no stockpiling of bottled water if you uh, you don't have to drink it pretty jolly quickly <laughs> thank you very much Jody. If, if, if I imagine you've got probably quite a lot on your website so if anybody would like to check it out karoo.co.za karoo.co.za thank you thank you for speaking on the bottle on behalf of the bottled water industry I'm sure there's a lot more we could talk about it for another day thanks Jodie.
Take no care. problem at all. Thank you. Bye-bye. Jodie Brimer with uh, Cape Carew Mineral Water. Well, as I say, lots more to discuss on the bottled water issue. We'll get to that another day. Not least, what do you do with the bottles afterwards? You're listening to the Enviro Show. Well, next up, we were talking about uh, wetlands earlier and the importance of wetlands internationally and locally to so many species, not least uh, humans. But if you were a white-winged fluff-tail, your very existence could depend on a wetland, which is why currently on in Johannesburg, there is the Fluff-Tail Festival celebrating our wetlands. And we have to tell us all about it. We've got CEO of BirdLife South Africa, Mark Anderson, back on the line. Hi, Mark. Nice to have you with us. Thank you very much. So the Flufftail Festival is uh, underway celebrating our wetlands. I've just pointed out that these poor old wing-tailed, white-winged flufftails will be no more if anything happens to the wetlands. But just tell us a little bit more about them. I mean, the Flufftail Festival is really a fun event um, in Santon City from uh, Tuesday until Sunday, so 3rd to the 8th of February. And, of course, follows on World Wetlands Day, which was on on Monday. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's around wetlands, water, water birds, and um, as the species we decided to focus on is the flufftails, or the group of species. Nine of them in, Af- nine of them in the world, um, seven of which are in Africa. Then, of course, we have the white-winged flufftail in South Africa, which is one of only two globally critically endangered species in our country. Yeah, I was reading statistics somewhere, I think it was in your um, release, something like 250 of them left in the world. Yeah, we, we you know, that's a, a bit of a guess, but we... You know, we just don't know how many there are, but there's very few left. And, you know, the wetlands, which they've been recorded at historically, are, you know, in bad shape. Um, and the other interesting thing about the white-winged flufftail, um, which is a tiny little bird, and we tell people it's somewhere in mid-size between a ping-pong ball and a tennis ball, so that you can get an idea how, big it, how small it is. Mm. But they, um, they, they occur here in South Africa, and any other place they occur is in Ethiopia, remarkably. So they move between the two countries. And the place where they breed, the only place where they've ever been recorded to breed is in Ethiopia. In fact, there are three wetlands in Ethiopia. So BirdLife South Africa is involved in work um, in South Africa and, in, of course, in Ethiopia as well. So we work very closely with an organization called the Middlepint Wetland Trust, which really falls under the administration and management of BirdLife South Africa. Um, but, yeah, trying to protect these important wetlands and do what we can to conserve this uh, very threatened species. So they don't breed at all in South Africa, so there was nothing we can do to sort of help, you know, give them a leg up when they're breeding system. No, unfortunately they don't, and the, um, the non-breeding sites are obviously, yeah, and we know where all those are, um, so we've, we do surveys there to actually record their presence. Some of the wetlands are, you know, not in good shape. We're now initiating projects to, um, to try and rehabilitate those wetlands. But I can tell you they could potentially breed in South Africa in the near future because we're working with the National Zoological Gardens in Pretoria, and this year we'll be building a captive facility for flufftails at the zoo in Pretoria. Um, so initially we're going to be putting red-chested flufftails in this facility, and it's a more common species. Once we've learned the ropes and know a bit more about the husbandry, we will be um, introducing white-winged flufftails. We'll probably be going to Ethiopia to collect eggs, put them in incubators, and, uh, you know, it's, it's quite... Unfortunate that the future of a species survival may depend on this facility with a few breeds that yeah. which we hold in the facility. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's not just it's not just this little bird. I mean, there are all sorts of creatures that are, are getting very, very threatened. It's very difficult to take a bird that's called a fluff tail seriously. I have to say, it's a very unfortunate name. Isn't it, it is, and uh, it's been a lot of fun this week. You know, we we've got an ad agency um, called Utopia based in Cape Town that helps us with a lot of our ad work. They do pro bono work for us. And um, they kind of like the idea, and, you know, this mystical creature, the flufftail. You know, what is a flufftail? I must tell you, you know, we've taken over Santon City this week, 
we're everywhere. We're in the Checkers Court. We've got a massive display. We're working with Randwater, Eskom, and Fountain City. But this, this giant wetland we've created. Um, we've got a photographic exhibition, um, the Wetlands of Life photographic competition we've held in the last few weeks. We've got the top images from that competition on display. But also in all the, um, in the tables and of all the restaurants, we've got table talkers, very nicely designed table talkers. Which, you know, so while people are sitting and waiting for their food, they can read about fluff tales and read about wetlands. And we've got tool wobblers, they're called, and all the tools throughout Fenton City. And there's posters and the digital electronic billboards are about the, the fluff tale and the festival. So, you know, you can't walk into Santon City this week without noticing Flufftail. Yeah, well, your Utopia guys have had lots of fun, haven't they, with the Flufftail. Why should we be worried, that's my, my favourite question, you know, if we don't see any more Flufftails, what else is going to suffer? Yeah, and, you know, the reason why we, as BirdLife South Africa, focus on some of these species is because they, they're good indicators of the health of a particular habitat or the environment. You know, we always talk about the proverbial canaries in the coal mine. Mm. And, um, you know, and the flufftail is a good one because it is a, um, you know, wetland bird. Um, if it goes, um, and then a lot of um, other species will go as well. So it's not just about birds that use these habitats, but it's about insects, it's about, um, you know, frogs and other diversity. But of course, you know, humans are also dependent on wetlands. You know, one of the most critical resources in this country is water. Mm. You know, that's the origin of water. So if you protect the flufftails, you're protecting their habitat, and, you know, you know, ultimately humans will benefit. Yeah, um, the whole theme of our show today has very much been around water and the, the crisis there. But Flufftail, just going back to the visuals, uh, given that there are so very few in this country, I imagine a lot of people haven't seen them. What do they look like? Where are they likely to be seen? Well, they're tiny little birds that are... Um, the ping-pong ball thing. Yeah, ping-pong balls. They, they're almost seldom seen. The red-chested Flufftail is more regularly seen in wetlands. It's a bit more common. Then there's a flufftail, which is not a wetland species, called the buff-spotted flufftail, which um, is actually found in cities, and um, they, you know, they're in Joburg um, as well, and, and heard calling, but not very common. But they, you know, we've done uh, these what we call flushes occasionally, and every few years we do a flush at Middlepunt Wetland near Dahlstrom, and we get a lot of people to come stand on the bank, and we have some experienced um, people walking through the wetland. Um, to disturb a flufftail. Once we disturb one and uh, a white-winged flufftail, it flies up. Everybody's had a look, and then we sort of stop the the, um, the flush. Um, and it's just you know creating awareness about um, about sure. the species. Gosh, it's, not, it's a group of yeah. bird one seldom sees. Yeah, I was going to say cameras at the ready. You know, flush guys got quick get cameras. Yeah, cameras exactly, up and there. you know they're not really well photographed. Yeah. The interesting thing, Nancy, I must tell you, is that nobody has, we don't know what the call of the white-winged flufftail is. It's what's suspected to you know have a certain call later determined to actually be in the great crown crane call that was initially thought to be white wing flufftail call. So once you have these birds in captivity, once one of our main objectives is to um, determine the call of the white wing flufftail. Because if you're going to be surveying, you know, trying to determine whether they're present and get an indication of numbers in these wetlands that they use, it's quite useful if you know the call, because you can then, you know, locate birds calling at, yeah. you know, at night, for example. So um, but they, they, they're not often seen, and I was... Uh, actually doing a bit of reading up on them in the last week and um Warwick Tarbiton, the famous ornithologist was helping me with some information and you know, what I was quite interested to know is you know what is the origin of this name Fluff Tail because you know it's, it's quite an interesting name and uh, very intriguing to many people but it's uh, it's actually um Austin Roberts when he published his the first edition of Roberts Birds of Southern Africa in 1940 he coined the phrase the term the, the name for Fluff Tail and his description is it's a short 
a bird with a short, fluffy tail. <laughs> it wasn't as exciting as I, I hoped it to be. Cute, eh? Um, yeah. Just lastly, if anybody is anybody's heard a fluff tail call, please let us know. Pop us a mail. We're at enviro at safm.co.za. Um, I imagine seeing as it's a kind of a rare bird, he wouldn't so much be on your list of vote for South Africa's favourite birds, which I think is coming to an end. Your campaign is coming to an end at the end of... February. End of the month, end of yeah. February. That's is right. The fluff, yeah, so is we, the fluff tail we've had on the list? Of fun. <laughs> is the fluff tail on the list? No, it's not. No, um, not. We didn't include it, and in irregularly so, I think. You know, we um, the 52 species that we shortlisted for this vote for South Africa's favourite bird of our 846 that occur in our country, and uh, we had a lot of uh, difficulty narrowing down the number to 52. Um, and yeah, unfortunately, the fluff tail is not there. But well, we've had a huge response to this uh, poll, Matty. Jolly good, and I hope you've had a very big response to the Hardy Dar. If you haven't yet voted, please vote for the Hardy Dar. Um, how's he doing? Hardy Dar is um, 27 out of 52, so halfway. Mm. So <laughs> Middle um, of the road. I was just thinking just now, you know, we've had more than 6,000 people vote already, so we're quite impressed with the turnout and, the, and uh, with the response. And it's been on radio and television and newspapers and so on. But I was just thinking that, you know, if all the people listening to your show this evening went to our website and voted for the Hardy Dodge, could go from 20 to 7 Jolly to 1 right. literally overnight. Absolutely. That's an order. <laughs> Mark, thank you very much. Okay. In fact, if you go to our Facebook page, you'll find it right loud and clear and you can do your voting thing. Mark Anderson, thank you very much and enjoy the Flufftail Festival. Take care. Well, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about the Flufftail Festival, it's on through until the 8th of February. Check their site. It's birdlife.org.za, birdlife.org.za. And if you feel inclined, please vote for the Hardy Dar. I'm determined to get him right up there to the top. In a minute, we're going to be talking about pink velvet worms. Oh, yes. But right now, it's time to find out what's going on at AFCON, see if the score has uh, happened at all. Hi, Atta. Hello, indeed. Yes, a lot has happened. Uh, within the last few minutes of the second of the first half, which is now in recess at halftime, but the score is now Ghana two, while Equatorial Guinea the host nil. Uh, the first goal for Ghana came up in the 41st minute when Jordan Ayew converted from the penalty spot, and now that penalty came in after Ovono, the goalkeeper for Equatorial Guinea, came off his line once again trying to close down Ghanaian striker Apia, but this time he got it wrong and he got nowhere near the ball and clattered the Ghanaian striker. Now the referee also kept it sensible with a yellow card only for the goalkeeper and upstate Jordan Ayu, who made no mistake the Laureate midfielder, calmly booted the ball into the bottom right corner with Ovono guessing wrongly. The second goal for Ghana came in the 45th minute just ahead of halftime. To make it 2-0 it was Waikasa who against the run of play after Equatorial Guinea were awarded a corner, the counter-attack came with the full speed of Ghana Black Stars, which was too much for Equatorial Guinea's National Thunders. So the current score is still 2-0 for Ghana at halftime. A beautiful weather as well, 30 degrees of heat outside, not really much affecting the players. 74% chance of rain, which was expected, but that's not to be. So at a fully packed stadio de Malabo, it's Equatorial Guinea 0 no, and Ghana 2.
That's a Sibeta for SFM Sport. Thanks very much, Asha. Well, how's that? Ghana too. Well done, those guys. Well, it's not over till it's over, is it? But let me not divert um, get into issues of football. Finally, though, here on the Enviro Show, the bug series that we'd hoped to start last week, it's happening right now as we hear about the rediscovery of the pink velvet worm which was thought some years ago to have been extinct until Professor Saville Daniels came along. He's a zoologist at Stellenbosch University, and we have him on the line. Hi, Professor. Hello, how are you? Very well, very well. We Excellent. Were, Welcome. We, Hello to the listeners as well. Thank you very much. We missed you last week, but it doesn't matter because we've got you now. So, Absolutely. Tell us about the pink velvet worm, which was thought to have been extinct when and why? Well, the, the velvet worms at Ngeli Forest are IUCN red-listed as critically endangered. So that's the highest status um, that any animal can be listed at. Um, and so obviously from a conservation perspective, it is critical for us to conserve it. Theoretically, the numbers there have been quite low. Um, but in 2010, I went out there um, to see if I could find some of them, a couple of field trips up to Ngeli Forest just out of Kokstad. Kokstad um, turned up to yield absolutely nothing. But in the following year, I went back there, and this time around, I found quite a few of them. So I'm not sure if it's just a seasonal fluctuation that the animals are undergoing. Um, but the population up there seems to be doing well genetically. They seem to be quite structured. I mean, the forest patch is quite small in the area. Um, but the genetic results from the study that I've um, undertaken up there and have subsequently published suggest that there isn't a lot of gene flow between the fragments in the forest. If you think about this, the N2 actually runs through Ngeli Forest. So there's actually two halves of the forest, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement of these small little critters between these two uh, fragmented uh, forest patches. What conditions do they like then? That at one point that they seem to be, they seem not to be around anymore. Have conditions changed? What sort of climate do they like? So, in general, they like what we call saprophilic environments, and these are environments that um, are generally associated with decaying um, substances, like decaying woodlocks or um, decaying leaf litter. Um, around the forest, um, around Gailey Forest, there's been a lot of um, artificial plantations that have gone up there, eucalyptus, for example, and, and pine, and that's obviously having an impact on the habitat availability because the velvet worms appear to be sensitive in general um, and quite specific in their preferences. They like indigenous forest logs. They don't seem to prefer these alien um, vegetation patches. Um, and so because of that, I think that's one of the reasons why the population there has just really been relatively low in comparison to other velvet worm species, for example, where um, the animals have got big Afromontane or misspelled forest patches for them to live in. Are they indigenous themselves? I mean, are they, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, endemic? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so a lot of the, the velvet worms in South Africa, there's, there's two genera in the country, Epistopatis and Peripatopsis. Um, historically, based on the taxonomic literature, it would suggest that 
you know, Prepatopsis capensis, for example, or the Cape Velvet Worm. We've got a wide distribution occurring all the way from Cape Town to Swellendam, for example. But that's just based on morphology. In other words, what the animal looks like if you count the leg pairs and you look at the, at the color, for example, of the animal. But again, the genetics that I've done um, on these primitive little beasts suggest that um, within a lot of these taxa, a lot of these species that have historically been thought to have this wide geographic distribution is actually several distinct species that are nested within them. Um, so again, I mean, in that respect, it's critical for us to apply genetic tools because it suggests that there's high levels of endemicity for these little bugs um, simply because no one has looked at them before. But it also suggests that a lot of these species that live in a similar environment that's got a low dispersal capability, probably exhibits a very similar pattern in terms of their genetics and their species diversity. Mm. And if one were to come across one, what do they look like? I mean, pink velvet worms, they sound quite <laughs> elegant. but I don't know. They are actually pink, and when you touch them, they feel like velvet because on the, on the body surface they have these little hairs um, that they use when they are obviously crawling around in the leaflet, and that's quite sensitive. So uh, scientifically, those little structures are called papilla, with little sensory hairs in the center. But no, the pink velvet worm is pink, um, and it is velvet to the touch. And do they reproduce themselves? I mean, if you, you know, like with an ordinary old earthworm, if you break them in half, they sort of wriggle off in two different directions. <laughs> do, do these... Yeah, okay, so in um, this is the one thing probably about velvet worms that is a bit confusing. I think generally when people think of a worm, they think of, as you rightfully point out, an uh, earthworm, for example. But we have to remember that earthworms are annelids, okay? Velvet worms are very primitive arthropods. So for those of us who can remember back to when we were at primary school, the arthropods are the animals that have got the hard exoskeletons on the outside. In other words, unlike humans, for example, who has got an endoskeleton, these animals have skeletons on the outsides of the body. So, um, yes, they do reproduce, um, but they have a very weird way of reproducing. So, in general, um, they use a form of reproduction that's called dermal insemination. So, for example, a male would locate a female. He would bite onto the back of the female and he would deposit a small amount of sperm on it in a sperm packet. The body would then send um, hemocytes or lymphocytes to this area um, and this would open the sperm packet and then the sperm packet can then release the sperm. The sperm can then swim into the body cavity and go to the ovaries. So it's quite a bizarre alien method of reproduction. It's not, it's not very common in, in arthropods. I should think it's not very common, full stop. <laughs> Period, yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite unique. I certainly wasn't expecting to hear about the sex life of a pink velvet worm on this show, I Well, you asked. <laughs> I did, you did, right. Professor Daniel, thank you so much. It's been totally fascinating. It's and a pleasure. God bless the pink velvet worm. Thank you for your time. Good Take night. care. Bye-bye. Professor Saville Daniels, he's a zoologist at Stellenbosch University. Well, I did ask, and there we go. Now we know.
And I uh, hope we'll have uh, more on our bug feature, you know, at a later stage right here on the Enviro Show. Well, thanks very much for the team. That's Kim Winter and Derek Fordyce, and I'm Nancy Richards. And up next, we have Stephen Kirker standing in the wings. Hi, Stephen. 